Well, hello everyone and good evening and welcome to this special BTOG webinar, which is an update of the superb evidence and data that was presented at the very recent uh, ISLC World Lung Cancer Congress 2023. We're going to be updating all of you with the latest data that was presented. We're going to be discussing matters for an hour and a half. It's great if you've dialed in and you're live. If you are live and you have dialed in, please make sure that you've clicked on the Slido link and you have Slido open because we want your questions to pose to our panelists to make this as interactive as possible. So please do make sure that you take some time to open up Slido and ask your questions as the presenters are giving their uh, presentations. I'm joined today by four experts who are going to update us on all the various data sets from the uh, meeting. First of all, we'll have a presentation from Mr. John Edwards, who's thoracic surgeon at Sheffield. Then uh, uh, Dr. Jerry Hanna, who's clinical oncologist at Belfast. Then Dr. Fiona Blackhall, who is medical oncologist in Manchester at the Christie. And Dr. McDonald, Fiona McDonald, who's going to be updating us uh, on the radiation data and she's a consultant uh, radiation oncologist at um, Marsden. So uh, uh, we, uh, of course, owe great uh, in debt of thanks to Dawn and Gina, who are our executive team. Uh, they continue to make the technical aspects of this uh, webinar possible. And if you have any BTOG uh, questions, please do reach out to them at any point. Uh, now, a few bits of housekeeping. As I've mentioned before, please please do type your questions into the question and answer panel, uh, and uh, please do these right throughout the presentation. So we've got questions to ask our um, speakers. At the end of the webinar, you'll be given an email for your feedback and uh, your certificate of attendance, and we are currently awaiting for uh, confirmation of CME from the Royal College of Physicians. And if you're not able to join us live and are listening to this on podcast, you too can still receive the um, uh, CME using the relevant code from the Royal College of Physicians website uh, up to four uh, weeks after the event. So we're going to kick off initially with uh, John Edwards discussing the MARS-2 trial, and that's really the highlight, I think, for many people wanting to know more about this uh, data set. We're going to move thereafter to Jerry Hanna, who's going to be discussing all things radical intent, non-small cell lung cancer. Moving thereafter to Fiona Blackhall, who's going to be discussing all things metastatic, non-small cell and small cell. Yes, things are happening in small cell. And finally, rounding off with Fiona McDonald, who's going to be telling us about all things radiation. In fact, there are things happening in that field as well. And we'll aim to close by 19.30, uh, an hour and a half from now, uh, if everything goes according to plan. So without further ado, uh, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, uh, John Edwards. John, take it away. Tell us about Mars 2. So um, good evening, everybody, and thank you for, for joining this BTOG webinar. And uh, I've been, been asked to make a presentation regarding the Mars 2 study, as you can see the, the full title of that here. And I must firstly pass my great thanks to the Professor Eric Glim for, for providing me with the official slide sets to enable me to present the, the, the trial with my slight take on it and, uh, and then allow us to discuss it. So many thanks to him. And uh, in terms of conflicts, there's no conflicts that are relevant to this, this discussion. So Mars 2 was a tremendous effort, involved a lot of people, and this is just the, the committee members and the, the PIs. And if you include all the 
um, the, the the various teams within each hospital. It was many hundreds of people that were involved in the in the Mars Two study. Um, but I'm of course assuming that that you don't know very much about it at all. So we'll take it afresh. So the the background to Mars Two was, I guess, Mars originally the the, the study that was presented at the the World Conference on Lung Cancer in Amsterdam in 2011 um, was the the feasibility randomized study of of extrapleural pneumonectomy versus not for patients with mesothelioma, and that caused quite a stir at the time, bearing in mind that it was a feasibility study. And I guess the main outcome of that was that the it did not seem to be feasible for us to be able to deliver an appropriate, fully powered study in order to test whether this operation was worth doing. Having said that, it did seem to be practice changing to a degree in the in in the light of the fact that only one or two centres worldwide have continued to to op, to offer EPP in the setting of mesothelioma. The second um, important paper came from a, a group in in New York who were comparing different data from from two different institutions to look at the outcomes of EPP versus pleurectomy decortication. So that's the the long sparing but complete macroscopic resection option. And, uh, and the, the study there seemed to suggest that there was a slight difference in survival with there being a, um, a slightly better survival with the, the lung sparing approach. And so that led us um, to, to consider uh, where to, to go in the UK. The other background, of course, is the MESOVAT study, um, which was a properly powered study of VATS partial pleurectomy, which um, did not show meaningful quality of life difference and did not show any difference in survival between the surgery and the no surgery group. So the trial design and the, the objectives were to compare the clinical and cost effectiveness of extended pleurectomy decortication and chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone for these patients. And the primary outcome was, was calculated to be overall survival. And this was a patient and public involvement um, generated difference of 30%. Um, and I, I can explain in the, in the discussion how that was achieved. And, uh, and the power of that led to a sample size calculation of 328 participants. There were also secondary outcomes, as you can see here, of, of PFS, safety and quality of life and, of course, cost effectiveness. The schema of the trial was that patients with um, the, in, in the left hand box meeting the eligibility criteria underwent two cycles of platinum pemetrexate chemotherapy, a further CT scan um, before a randomization between EPD with further chemotherapy or just the chemotherapy alone. In terms of the accrual, um, this is an exemplary accrual graph. Um, to the left of the first dotted line is the, um, the so-called the feasibility phase, where it was the first 50 or so randomizations that were, that were included. And, and it was pretty good to say that we were actually ahead of the graph in terms of national accrual um, in that feasibility setting, which enabled the study to, to gain funding from the NIHR HTA program um, for the full study. And you can see that, that accrual then continued very nicely as predicted. Um, and even despite the, the pause of recruitment around COVID, um, you can see that, that the, the recruitment was pretty much to target. In terms of participant flow, um, I'm going to come up with a little bit of extra detail on the next the next graph, but on in within the study 
um, data collection, there were over a thousand patients that were that were assessed for eligibility, and for various reasons, they were people were were excluded, and three hundred and thirty five randomised with a roughly equal number between the surgery and the no surgery group. If you actually look at at our own um, North of England's take on this, so in Sheffield we've had a, a specialist mesothelium MDT for pretty much fifteen years. And so what we did was to screen absolutely everybody coming through during that study period. Um, whereas those other sensors that you can see listed that fed patients to us, they were already partially um, screened. So, uh, so that, that you can see in the final column, the percentage of patients that were enrolled from, from those that were referred is, is, is very different. So that gives us some indication from our Sheffield denominator of 316 that 12% um, of the patients that we saw uh, were enrolled and just under 6% of, of our patients, of our patient population within a captive geographic specialist mesothelia MDT covering 1.9 million people, um, that, that just under 6% of our mesothelioma patients were, were randomized in the study. In terms of deviations and withdrawals, there were, um, as you can see here, the the, the um, fidelity to the protocol was 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 pretty good, and uh, and in fact, if you if you look at the, the overall, over ninety five percent of patients received the allocated treatments um, within the protocol, which is which is pretty good, I should think, considering the complexity of the study. And you can see that, yes, there were some post-randomization withdrawals, but that rate, again, was still pretty low um, and for the reasons that you can see here. When it comes to the baseline demographics, these were, were pretty evenly matched between the two groups. And, uh, and, and certainly in, in, in terms of, of the, um, the cell type, for example, 86% of the patients that were included in the study had an epithelioid cell type. There were some slight differences um, when we look at the, the clinical TNM stage between the patients, um, but, but effectively, I, I don't believe that these are, are meaningful differences, for example, in terms of the percent, percentage of patients having involvement of diaphragmatic muscle on the CT scan. Um, ultimately, this was a randomized study, and so the, these different features will have presumably get, get balanced out. And when it comes to the surgical procedure performed, you, you can see on the, the left-hand side the, the different types of, of, of operation that were, were performed. And again, the vast majority of, of, of patients received the proposed surgery of extended parectomy decortication. Um, some did not necessarily require the extended components, which by which we mean the resection and reconstruction of the diaphragm and or pericardium. You can see on that left-hand side again that there were some patients that did not require that in order to gain complete macroscopic resection. And then when we look at the, the intention of that complete macroscopic resection, um, you can see that 85 or so percent of patients that was achieved. Um, and uh, and that is that is of course is the intent of the operation, and then when it comes to the the, the mortality, both at in hospital and thirty day being the same, and then at ninety day mortality, these figures are are in line with with the international publications that have been produced around this operation over the years. 
Systemic treatments. So, um, of, of course, the surgery group had two cycles of chemotherapy, then the surgery, and then they had to recover. And then to, in, before having the further up to four cycles of chemotherapy thereafter. And so it's it is not surprising that with the, the magnitude of the operation, that there was some drop off in this respect. And this has been discussed at, at great detail. Um, and you can see that in terms of those that were randomized to no surgery, 56% ended up having all six cycles of chemotherapy, um, whereas it was 39% in those patients that were randomized to surgery. And I expect that we'll be able to discuss why that might be. Furthermore, when it comes to additional treatments, um, the additional treatments of, of immunotherapy clearly came on during this study. This study started recruiting in, in the middle of 2015 and con recruitment continued until um, till June, sorry, January 2021. So in that period of time, there was a, a move towards the availability of, of immunotherapy. And of course, some of our patients had that. But you can see, again, there was a, a difference between those, those two groups. And uh, we can discuss why that why we may think that is. When it comes to the primary outcome of overall survival, and uh, you can see the, the curve that was set here. Now, I'm not a statistical expert to the level of Professor Lim, and uh, but I do recognize that, that curves that have a fair amount of separation at the top um, and then cross over down at the bottom um, still have the ability to be statistically different in terms of their survival. But it does mean that the statistical methods are slightly different um, and hence non uh, uh, when, when the when there's uh, the, the, the survival is not proportional all the way down, we, we have to use different statistics. And, and again, that can be discussed by those that have more knowledge than me. But the important thing is that the survival rate, certainly within the first 42 months, which is quite a long period of time, um, you can see there that there was a significant um, advantage to patients having no surgery. And furthermore, when you looked at the, the numbers at risk beyond that 42 month period where those survival curves crossed, these numbers were really quite small. 90% um, of the, the patients were, were no longer alive at that point in time. So the fact that there was no difference in that very late term survival of those that conditionally survived until that point um, is, is, is what you can see there. In terms of progression-free survival, there was no difference between the two groups, between surgery and, and no surgery. And when it comes to safety, that the, uh, the, the, the usual categorization we're using CTCAE um, uh, grades, um, you can see that there was a significant difference in the, um, the categorization of the, the adverse events, um, as, as you can see on the top line there. And when it comes to the type of events, um, generally speaking, the ones where there the, that uh, where surgery was at a, a disadvantage, you can see that those included cardiac disorders, um, respiratory or uh, mediastinal disorders, and then infections as well. And these were ones where there was significant detriments to surgery. When it comes to the um, survival by histology, again, there were um, differences between the, the, the two groups. Not surprisingly, those that had non-epithelioid histology did, did worse. Um, and you can see those survival curves there. Um, in terms of the, the sensitivity analyses, again, um, high level statistics for, for people like me, but effectively what this in, involved was to, to look at the, the different um, 
weight of additional variables in there. So adjusting for the uh, amount of chemotherapy and the um, additional treatments and so forth. And it, it, it seemed to be the case that that did not make any difference to the treatment itself. Quality of life, not surprisingly, at that six-week period was worse with surgery and, uh, and then picked up as patients recovered. Um, and you can see that there. And in terms of EQ5D, pretty much the same as well. And there was a, a trend towards um, uh, worse quality of life in the surgery group through, throughout the study. So ultimately, the the uh, the issues that were discussed were, were about the, the concept of resectable disease in mesothelioma. And again, that's something for us to discuss um, because it was noted that that there was a um, the, the the there was a worse survival in the patients having having surgery, which you can see here. And uh, and of course, there is that that issue with regards to the availability of of treatments due to um, the patients having uh, being des designated as having unresectable disease, which is something that needs to be considered too. So the conclusions that were made during the presentation was that EPD had a higher risk of death, had more serious complications, poorer quality of life, and uh, at a higher cost as well, which I've, I've not gone into, um, compared to those that had chemotherapy alone. So I commend you if you are interested further to to go to the ISLC website to listen to the um, the live from discussions and uh, and this was ex was an extremely good um, eighteen minutes discussion about Mars two um, with uh, Professor Lim and Dr Ugalde the the discussant for the paper as well as two very well renowned oncologists um, and they came up with a number of different things that were discussed during that meeting the fact that the PPI was involved in the primary outcome which is very important and uh, and that it was felt that a mean clinically important dis difference of thirty percent was appropriate. Um, and uh, the point being that the, the risk of death being 28% higher was just short of that categorization of being harmful, but that the risk of complications was 3.6 times higher with surgery and quality of life lower. And ultimately, for every statistically significant difference where they occurred, the outcomes were poorer with surgery and the costs were higher than with chemotherapy alone. And it was also noted, however, that there were some cases that might still be appropriate for surgery, and those include the rare cases of localized mesothelioma, um, which is more akin to a, a localized sarcoma of sorts rather than, than being a diffuse pleural disease. So the, yes, there's been lots of social media and uh, and again with X slash tweet and Twitter, um, there's been lots of tweets around this. And, and if, for example, you look at the, the excellent thread by um, Dr. Brendan Stiles, thoracic surgeon in New York, um, for nearly 50,000 views of his thread um, with regards to Mars 2, which has lots of different uh, discussions amongst it. And these are some of the things that have been discussed in, in amongst that. And, uh, and it's something that is, is going to certainly um, require discussion amongst surgeons and so on for, for some time to come. And particularly when we see the final manuscript published, I expect there'll be some more discussion. And um, so... 
and I guess the, the other aspect for, for us um, mere surgeons is for us to consider where proportional hazards doesn't apply. And it's clear from discussions that there are people that, that struggle with the statistical understanding of survival curves in this setting. Um, and, uh, and this, for example, is actually I've, I've found a very useful um, reference to look at these statistical methods. So that's um, that's my my slide set. And yeah, brilliant. Um, brilliant. Thanks, John. That's a, a superb overview of where, where you know what uh, Mars do show now. Uh, uh, the folk that are, are there on the webinar, please do put your questions to John uh, in the Q&A box and uh, I can pose these to John when they, they come in. Um, but John, look, I think all of us in the UK were just like really shocked and surprised to see this detriment to surgery. And I think many of us, you know, weren't expecting it to be 30% better, but we didn't expect it to be 29% worse, mm. right? So... I mean, why do you think that, that that outcome has been seen? Because, you know, the, the quality of the surgery, and just comment on the on the nature of the quality of the surgery, the um, the fact that the surgeons videoed and saw each other's operation. So it, it, it's not an individual surgeon, it's surgical issue, is it? Or is it a patient selection issue? But that would have come out in the randomization. I think, yeah, I mean, I think I think ultimately it is a great big operation there is no question that it is a um a phenomenal operation to for a patient to withstand it's not a new it's not like a, a lung resection which where we're, we're all familiar um to a to a you know to, to a great degree we all know pretty much how how many of those patients we can get how quickly back to to adjuvant therapy or whatever but you know this is a a complete order of magnitude difference and i suspect part of that unfamiliarity amongst forgive me amongst the mdt to the impact of the surgery on patients lives meant that it may have been a surprise um i am not desperately surprised because you know i have seen yes the patients that get through and go and, and get home very quickly and have very few side effects but those that struggle do struggle and that there is no question about that. And that comes out in the in the toxicity data. So I'm not surprised. Um, I think the 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 quality of surgery was pretty even amongst the the groups. Um, as you say, we've we, we've discussed, I presented at IMIG the the surgical quality aspects of the study, and we made it as, as tight as we could. Um, Clearly, there is a, a family tree of, of mesothelioma thoracic surgery of which we were all a part, um, and uh, so we, you know, we, we've all known how we all do it. Um, we've all picked up tricks from from other centres overseas, and uh, and and so we did go through, as you rightly point out, we watched each other operate in a, as part of the, the surgical QA as well as recording. Um, I mean, some of that wasn't. I sort of ideally seen through to fruition in terms of the the review of videos and so forth, but but actually in terms of the 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 manual that was set up, the methods that we used were pretty tight um, and as tight as I think anybody could expect. And one of the criticisms of the study is the eight point nine percent ninety day mortality. Um, the criticism being we're operating on the wrong patients. Uh, I guess you'd say, well, that just changes the direction of the curve, not the fact that they separate. But you know. What do you think about that? I mean, is yeah. that high ninety day, nine uh, percent ninety day mortality? 
So I think if we if we consider, I mean, the same is true in lung cancer, not to nine nine percent. But if you if you consider, for example, pneumonectomy for lung cancer, a ninety day mortality of eight percent in the SEER database is 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 there or thereabouts. So I think I think if you if you consider this operation to be as impactful on the patient as a pneumonectomy. It's it, it's not it's not surprising to see a 90 day mortality rate along those lines. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't doesn't surprise me too much to see that. So uh, a few questions coming in. Um, in yeah, I think this is pretty straightforward, uh, John, but in the new world post Mars 2, uh, is it mandated not to offer surgery? I.e., Is surgery now completely off the, the menu for Miso? So I think it's it's ultimately the, it. it, it this changes things quite a lot um, and it depends very much on the team. Um, effectively, the most important thing is that patients and the teams are aware that if they wish to go down the route of surgery, it is with the acceptance of the fact that there is a 20, 28% increase in the risk of death and a 3.6 times increase in the, the, um, the risk of, of serious complications. Um, that's not to say that it's it is it is categorically off the menu, but I think that that many of the surgeons who offer this procedure will feel that that is not an appropriate course of action to take. Um, as I said, I think it's different for the localized mesothelioma where you have a ch localized chest wall mass and the rest of the pleura is completely normal. That, but that is sort of two or three percent of, of cases. So I think I think the 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 it'll be interesting to see how the guidelines around the world take heed of this or not, um, but I expect that that many of the guidelines will will feel will will strengthen the fact that if you really wish to undertake this procedure, it has to be within the concepts the the, con the, the, the context of a randomised controlled trial assessing the effect of surgery, not yet another nudging along the road of phase two studies, um, looking at the timing of this or the combinations of that. I think ultimately, if people believe, do not necessarily believe and trust this result, the onus on them has to be to conduct a better study. I think that's right. And, you know, for me, I think, you know, this really just shows the the power of selection bias, right? And the importance of a randomized comparison. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, just... Just to, just to mention, as again, you say how selected the patients were, under 6% of our geographic population's patients ended up being randomised in this study. So it is already, if people say, oh, well, you didn't select the right patients. Well, okay, so how, how what's the generalizability of this study if we're already excluding 94%? Um, it, it, does, it does beg the question as to, to you know, how generalizable the results are. Uh, and uh, a question about the role of the IDMC, right? We've demonstrated in this study 29% risk of X, 28% risk of excess mortality. Um, did the IDMC conduct an interim analysis and should they have shut the study down earlier to prevent more deaths from occurring? So, I mean, that's that's an, a, a question that I can't answer because I was not on that. Um, but I, I, you know, I know that they met because I've seen some of the submissions of reports to them, um, and and I, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that they felt that it was appropriate to continue the recruitment in the study um, to to at least allow the potential for for a survival difference. Um, so, I mean, it's it, it does beg the question, but I, I'm I'm 
you know, as I said, I expect that the 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 data monitoring committee address that during the trial. Indeed. Uh, well, John, thanks very much for that excellent overview and uh, for highlighting, I think, that really enormous practice changing uh, uh, data, which I'm sure has had huge ramifications. Just a final comment from you. What are the global ramifications of this study? And what, what is the feedback you've had from your global colleagues? Uh, is everybody similarly taking it off the menu or is it still? Uh, so so I think it, I think it depends who you talk to. Um, there are surgeons around the world who feel very strongly about surgery and will seek to critique the study as firmly as they can. And that's fine. I don't I don't have a problem with with robust um, criticism of a study that and, can be and, answered. And the manuscript is not published yet. Right. So, of course. So, so you know, there will be there will be that opportunity to see more, um, you know, when, when there's a lot more data behind it in terms of surgical quality that that's just not possible to present that in, in the uh, in even a presidential plenary session. So there's a lot more to come. But um, I suspect that the majority of, of, of surgeons and medical oncologists will think, OK, yes, this is helpful. We can move on. And uh, and I think, I, you know, for me, yeah, that's it's, you know, ultimately 25 years of research in, into mesothelioma and the fact that we we perhaps I end my I sign off with a study that shows that surgery isn't worthwhile. That's OK. It's still progress. It is, and uh, absolute uh, testament and credit to uh, everybody around the table in the UK who've, who've re recruited and randomised and enrolled uh, the patients, especially the top four centres who re recruited the majority of the uh, patients in this study. Absolute congratulations to everybody involved in the study in the UK. John, thank you very much for your time, and uh, we will now move on to our second speaker. Our second speaker is Professor Jerry Hanna, who's from... Uh, the Cancer Centre in Belfast. And Jerry, you're going to give us an update on all things with radical intent in non-small cell. And boy, there's a lot going on in this field at the moment in lung cancer. Very confusing. So please clear the mist and tell us what's new and what we should be doing. Thanks, Sanjay. And thanks for the invitation to deliver that this evening. As you say, all things radical. No pressure in less than 20 minutes, but we'll try and get through what I hope are the kind of key topics uh, from World Lung this year. Another great joy as it allows me to present some surgical data, something I, do, I rarely get the chance to do. So apologies for if I get it wrong. These are my disclosures, which are listed before. So we're going to talk a little bit about neoadjuvants, some interesting and thought-provoking neoadjuvant studies, uh, a few, uh, a one adjuvant study, and also some of the key outputs on operability uh, and surgery around that. So uh, neoadjuvant, of course, one of the great things about Worlong is catching up with great friends. And here, of course, two fabulous medon colleagues from Peter Mack, who is great to see in uh, Singapore itself. Now, my first study I'm going to take you through is the SAC 1618 study, which is a neoadjuvant chemotherapy study with dervalimumab immunomodulatory radiotherapy in stage three non-small cell. And um, this is a very curious design of a study. It included patients from who you know, uh, stage three, but could be anything up to T4N2. Um, had to be resectable operable though, and of course performance status one. And they had neoadjuvant cisplatin docetaxel um, and then neoadjuvant dervalimumab, and then had immunomodulated radiotherapy by one of three regimes, either 20 gray delivered in two fractions uh, daily um, uh, over four weeks, and five times five gray, a total of 25 gray, 
and three times eight grand, a total of 24 grand. The theory here was that one of these radiotherapy re regimes may actually prime the tumor or prime our immune system a little better than the others at getting an immune response and thus, therefore, a better outcome. Uh, this just shows you the flow diagram through that. So, uh, obviously, initial induction chemotherapy, followed by derva, followed by radiotherapy, and indeed surgery. 81% of patients getting, and that's 25, getting to surgery in the end. And if you, this is now a viable tumor in the primary, this is showing how many patients had viable tumor. And the take home really here is in this small study, and it is small numbers, there wasn't one standout regime that was better than the other. Um, you, you could say that maybe, you know, uh, three times eight gray look a little more promising, but actually there was no numerical difference uh, between these. And therefore there was no signal um, uh, to say where these were. Now this trial is going to continue to recruit to try and bring in 90 patients into this study. And we'll be interested to see does a trend or a, a, one of these regimes come out. From a radiation oncology point of view, this is uh, certainly quite interesting. And here was another study, uh, now from a Dutch group, looking at, again, surgery, again, after neoadjuvant immunochemoradiotherapy, again, uh, in uh, resectable, and this is from the increased study. Here is a trial design. Um, t now, this looked at higher stage T, so T3 uh, and N0 to N2 as part of stage 3. Uh, they had to be, obviously, performance at a 0-1, had to be suitable for resection, um, these patients had two cycles of chemotherapy, epi-nevo day one, nevo on day 22, um, uh, and radiotherapy during that concurrent phase, and then had surgical section and follow-up as appropriate there. And you can see here is kind of almost a consort diagram where you have 30 patients who started induction, one got COVID, 29 completed induction, 26 were operated, and 25 were suitable for the uh, final analysis. And this was one, you know, quite astonishing example, I thought, and quite interesting uh, to see you know, the extent of, of some surgery in some European centres. But here's a 43-year-old who had a potential resectable stage 3A in the superior sulcus of the uh, left lung, or really up, up, occupying the left upper lobe. They get a good metabolic response uh, and then proceed to hemivertebrobectomy uh, and left upper lobe lobectomy, and, and, and it is recorded as a complete response. But... Um, and you can see the different types of surgery. There was a range of surgical techniques used, uh, mainly at lobectomy, sometimes lobectomy and chest wall. And uh, th this showed pathological complete response rates of 60%. That's a lot higher than those of traditional concurrent induction chemotherapy and the recent chemotherapy IO trials. So, uh, and the surgical morbidity and mortality was increased. So these trials begin to suggest there might be a role as trimodality induction therapy of chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and radiotherapy. But of course, not ready for prime time just yet, and much more data and later phase trials uh, absolutely uh, needed. This is now moving, changing gear to the GN study. This study reported basically the surgical outcomes. So what was the surgery like after chemoimmunotherapy in the GN study? And you may recall the GN study was a randomization of platinum-based chemotherapy alone, uh, alongside uh, four cycles of dervalumumab, followed by surgery, and followed by adjuvant derva, uh, again, for four cycles, for 12, uh, for, sorry, 12 cycles uh, versus uh, placebo. Um, and as you can see, there was a, a improvement in event-free survival with the dervalumumab arm as compared to the placebo arm. But uh, 
these are looking at the, the surgical, and many underwent surgery who's it. And so if you look down on the blue side, the dermalumumab arm, 77.6% uh, of patients completed surgery. And in the placebo arm, 76.7, uh, really numerically very similar number of patients completed surgery in the placebo arm, suggesting that there was no difference to the ability to complete surgery in either arm. And I think that's probably what we would have expected with immunotherapy in that way. Um, and again, this is really showing the same uh, figure really in those, both in stage two and stage three, there was no difference in those patients who were able to proceed and complete uh, surgical resection, suggesting that in the strategy of neo neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy is certainly uh, you know, safe compared to induction chemotherapy alone in terms of being able to operate uh, afterwards. And that's exactly the conclusions that the uh, trialists came to. Staying there with the gene, there was an interesting uh, pre-planned analysis looking at the patients who were EGFR mutation positive. And uh, this, uh, there were uh, 51 out of the 802 patients randomized who had an EGFR mutation. And in the analysis of this, as you can see to the left of your screen, the uh, patients who had EGFR mutation subtype, really we didn't see a difference in the survival curves of dervalumumab and placebo. Now you have to take out a pinch of salt. This is a subgroup analysis of a design trial rather than a definitive result. Compared to the right of the screen, and these are the intention to treat population, we see that difference in uh, event-free survival. And this is suggesting, as we've seen in other scenarios, where uh, patients whose primary driver mutation is an EGFR mutation, that they're actually the, the uh, impact of adding uh, immunotherapy is actually lessened and may be indeed negligible um, uh, from that. Uh, and again, this is, it speaks to difference looking pathological response. Again, blue arm is the dervalumumab arm, placebo is uh, the orange arm. And you can see that those numerical difference compared to the intention to treat arm compared to the EGFR mutant arm. So in conclusion, there were significant improvements with perioperative uh, dervo and neoadjuvant chemotherapy for sure across the trial. But the suggestion here was that patients with an EGFR mutation driver do not benefit from uh, that addition of immunotherapy. Shifting gear to adjuvant, and this, of course, is the view from the beautiful Orchid Gardens, the uh, botanical gardens, looking back to the Marina uh, Sands Bay Hotel. And of course, uh, Singapore is a beautiful place we get the chance to visit. But this adjuvant, the only study I'm going to include here is the iSaber study. And this was a study uh, led by Joe Chang out of MD Anderson. And it was looking at giving uh, stereotactic radiotherapy for stage one non-small cell. And uh, adding in the, the research question was, does adjuvant immunotherapy help? Uh, the trial design is shown here, a patient randomized to Saber only, or Saber with a, a nivolumab for a total of four cycles over 12 weeks. One interesting critique of the study is that the Saber is delivered as 50 gray and four fractions. That's probably okay. But they also, the other alternative dose regime was 70 gray and 10 fractions. And that's a little bit different. We do sometimes in, in our UK Saber consortium protocol include you know 60 gray and 10 fractions but 70 gray and 10 fractions as a trial arm was a little you know more prolonged and certainly a little colder than we would expect um uh, and of course the question here is does it does the effect of saber get augmented by uh, adjuvant immunotherapy don't forget in stage one non-small cell our outcomes from saber are very good we would normally expect local control rates of certainly 80 to 90 percent rate uh, and uh, you know nodal failures of 10 percent of there thereabouts 
the inclusion criteria is as follows, and they did allow uh, tumours uh, certainly uh, up to seven centimetres in this study. And that wouldn't be necessarily standard UK saber practice at present, though that may uh, we that may migrate towards that in due course. There certainly is a, a good report from a, an Irish group looking for 110 patients of large uh, primary lung cancer treated with saber in that setting. That's the consort diagram, 78 patients uh, uh, randomly signed both arms, 75 uh, followed up in the saver low arm, 66 in the interventional arm. And here is the, uh, the key outcome from the study, which was event-free survival. Uh, and you can see the analysis both per protocol and per intention to treat arms. You can see quite a significant difference here at four years, the per protocol of 53% event-free survival with Sabre alone and 77% with the combination of Sabre and immunotherapy. The stonking thing that most people commented on about this study was the fact that a 53% event-free survival rate following Sabre for what is what were largely stage one non-small lung cancers was a very low event-free survival and, and certainly you know, was much lower than what we'd expect in clinical trials or indeed in other uh, published trials of Sabre in stage one non-small cell. And the question is, why is that? And has this impacted this difference? Of course, if you have a very, very low event-free rate, then the impact of your experimental therapy will indeed be less. Uh, in terms of toxicity, as expected, the only uh, uptick was around about uh, pneumonitis. And the infield failure in this study was indeed very low with uh, one failure in field for the same. And that would be what we would see in clinical practice, very low rates of local failure in that setting. So they also, and this was quite a, a theme of a lot of presentations were lung, where they presented uh, explorative or, you know, sometimes, you know, fairly well worked up radiomic uh, artificial intelligence analysis. And they suggested that with a radiomic analysis, they could predict in the study those patients who would benefit most from the Sabre uh, immunotherapy arm. That's yet unpublished data, but it's certainly very interesting that radiomics, which has been really not well used or, or certainly hasn't had a, a, a very good predictive outcome, is certainly uh, being reported in clinical trials. So conclusions compared to Sabre alone, the addition of immunotherapy improves event-free survival at four years in patients with early stage lung cancer, but the low event-free survival rate is, is concerning. It, could be a treatment option, but we really need to do a, a more mature, certainly phase three randomized study before this becomes uh, near a standard of care. So finally, looking back to surgery and operability, this is the view from uh, the hotel I sit in, looking back. And of course, just as we left where Lung wasn't our Grand Prix on, and this is the Grand Prix track at nighttime, getting ready for the Singapore Grand Prix, which was, I think, uh, not last weekend, but the weekend before. Um, and this, uh, this study I'm going to show you first was analysis of second primary cancer rates from the CAL, CALGB 140503 study. This was a study pre uh, presented initially at ASCO in 2022 by Nasser Al-Turki, and this was looking at uh, LUBER versus sublubber resection in early stage non-small cell lung cancer. And um, it was a phase three study. Um, it, it was very well designed, certainly well published, and as you know, has begun to establish that subrolobar resection as a pattern of care. Um, now, in the study, they analysed for what was a second the rates of second cancer generation separate to primary. And 
the uh, they recorded in a trial database that was quite a close surveillance, a CT scan every six months for one year, then annually for five years. Um, the trials could be changed, you know, to, to two yearly for six months and up to seven years from surgery. And um, the median follow-up was seven years. They had very clear diagnosis clinical criteria for a second primary lung cancer. It had to be a different histology, a new lung cancer, which is diagnosed two years after initial lung cancer, or a new tumor diagnosed a different lobe or segment without intervening lymph nodes or metastases. So robust definitions to start this off. And what they showed was that there was indeed a surprisingly high rate of second primary lung cancer after initial complete resection in the, the CLA GB study. And that was of a rate if you had a lobectomy of 31% per patient per year, or uh, you know if you had a sublobar resection, very slightly, but not statistically differently higher, at 3.8%. But certainly over the five-year second primary rate in the study population was 15.9%. I was quite surprised at how high that was, suggesting, of course, as we know, that there's a field change by whatever the carcinogenic events have been that have led to the initial uh, lung cancer. And of course, this informs what we might do about follow-up after initial lung cancer. I want to finish off by talking about surgical definition of resectability. Now, you may recall from World Lung uh, last year that there was a lot of controversy about what is the definition of resectability. And a lot of fun was provoked at a surgical colleague, but nobody could define what resectability was. So there's a lot of work that's gone on in the meantime, led by the ERTC, at saying what might be resectable. And there are two papers presented on this. This very first paper uh, acknowledged that there was no uh, definition. They brought out a group of, you know, a, a large ranging group of organizations, uh, including uh, surgical societies, medical oncology societies, radiation oncology societies, uh, uh, respiratory clinician societies, and of course, Isaac himself to say, how might we uh, address this? There was, a, of course, a Delphi consensus project, systematic review, and some cases discussion. And here they, they, they do, they, they prevent, presented the results of the survey. So the survey was a short survey, um, and they defined what they would agree. So definitely consensus was thought to be 75% agreement amongst partitions, participants, sorry. And, um, and, and they were grouped in this fashion together. And I'm just going to flick on for the sake of time. There were, uh, were uh, nearly 600 respondents, mainly surgeons, then coming next radiation oncologists, medical oncologists next, and of course pulmonologists and other folks. And they generally were in specialized cancer center, had more than five years experience, and treated you know, a good number of non-small cell patients uh, annually. And this is the take-home message from the survey. And if you look at the cross, you see T-stage down the left-hand side of the, the vertebral column, then along the horizontal top, you can see the end stage. And as you would expect, you know, for N2 bulky and N2 invasive, they were all thought to be non or unresectable. Very clearly, if you had N1 disease and you were up to T4, then people thought those were potentially resectable. And you're in this kind of gray-yellow zone for instance, if you take T1 to T3, N2 multi-station, there was no consensus achieved as to whether this was resectable or not. For N2 single station with higher T stages, T3 to T4, again, no consensus. And again, for T4 with invasion, no consensus could be achieved. And this was then used to then undertake further work, which I'll present now in the next uh, paper. So they also asked about resectability of a T3, T4, and uh, Quite interesting, most people thought that T4, uh, that both the heart and to some extent the esophagus were generally unresectable uh, for T4 tumors.
<clears throat> so that work was taken forward from the, the survey and they then uh, undertook a, 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 a ERTC lung cancer group initiative to then to take this forward and actually fine tune those uh, statements further from that. So uh, they then finalized the Delphi uh, analysis and they basically went to say consensus definitions. They said that inpatients being worked up for for potential surgical section, they had to have these mandatory workup items, as you can see on the left of the screen. They also must, at your MDT or, or in the decision-making regarding the process, you must have the following specialties involved in the treatment decision. And these would make sense to us in the UK context in our MDT uh, setting. So for stage uh, 3A uh, to T3N1, um, these tumours were considered resectable. And that would be, I don't think, controversial at any level. For N2 tumours, uh, first thing they said that you had to pathologically confirm that N2 was involved, um, and uh, if they were uh, bulky but you know uh, discrete, possibly resectable, um, and so on. Here, stage three T2NA, and I'll, I'll summarise these in the table at the end, and you can see we're beginning to lose consensus as we go down the higher stage. Certainly, bulky N2 was considered unresectable by most people. Um, also, what could you resect in the final analysis? The, the, as you see in, the t in table one here, the heart, trachea, esophagus, and spinal cord were largely considered unresectable, whilst all the other structures as listed here, if they were involved, were considered potentially resectable in that way. So finally, just to get the table. So as you can see, this table refines it a bit. And in the table, they bring in that N2 multi-station, if it's non-bulky and non-invasive, could be considered potentially resectable. I think that would be a change for most of us in the MDTs we work in. N2 single station uh, is, uh, by this consensus work, considered resectable for T1 to T4. But if there's T4 with invasion and it's N2 uh, single station, then it, it's potentially rather than actually by definition resectable. And you can see all the non, the unresectable definitions as uh, a line there in red. And I think this has been a very useful piece of work. It's finally nailed down for prospective clinical trials, for MBTs, where we sit in that whole spectrum of what's resectable and unresectable. This is really, really important when we consider neoadjuvant therapy, such as neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, and neoadjuvant immunotherapy and radiotherapy alongside all of that. So in the radical, what's my takeaways for you? So one is there are some interesting early phase studies of what I would call quad modality therapy using chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiotherapy, and surgery. In a gene, the interesting signal here was the reduced efficacy of IO in the EGFR positive population. This may inform uh, further clinical trials or practice beyond that. Adjuvant derva after SABRE improves event-free survival, but we do need to wait those phase three studies. We, we see significant rates of the second primary lung cancer induction in a very well-designed surgical study in the US of the order of 3.13 8% per annum with a medium follow-up of seven years. And this, end, this highlights the importance of follow-up uh, after uh, initial uh, radical therapy. And finally, the ERTC lung group have provided a consensus definition of surgical resectability, even though we couldn't get consensus in the middle, but that left that bit of potentially and not potentially resectable. And those are, for you, are uh, my takeaways for, for radical therapy from World Lung. Thank you. Very fantastic, and thank you for that wonderful overview. Uh, a few minutes for questions to Jerry, so please take to the Q&A panel and type in your questions. 
uh, oh no, that's the inevitable radiation oncologist showing affecting their muscles at the. Uh, Somebody flicked it on, I think, there. But yes, this, but so that, by the way, is our picture we get taken every year at World Lung. All the radiation colleges club together and get a great photograph. So that's our radiation college picture. Sorry, I'd forgotten that was there. Yeah, yeah. Well yeah, well done. So listen, uh, a few few things to dive into. So this issue of quad therapy. I mean, I think for me, the one thing that the neoadjuvant studies have showed us is that. You know, it's all about achieving a path CR, right? Those patients that get a path CR are the ones that have highest likelihood of cure, right? So adding in radiation to the cocktail of chemo and immunotherapy really makes good biological sense to try and get a path CR. And we saw in the increased study from our Dutch colleagues, 60%, right? And the Swiss colleagues are, you know, tinkering at the edges of trying to short, sort out the, the, the schedule. So where are we going in this in in this field, uh, Jerry? Is this really going to make a difference, or are we just sort of is this just academic navel gazing, or or you know are we going to be able to do some definitive study? We haven't even sorted out the right radiation schedule. I saw that in the. So yes. the 20 by 2 grey had 0%. Yeah. So, so that's been the whole debate about what is, if you believe this whole thing of radiation being an immune priming treatment, you know, is it a small touch of radiotherapy? Is it a big single dose? Is it fractionated? And we don't have a good answer for it. It does seem to be not a very, very high, you know, multiple doses. It does seem to be that kind of 3 times 8 grey you know, in certainly in the preclinical, you know, urine study seems to be the best and, and whatever readouts that we have on that. And I, I think that might be where it might land if it's going to be that effect. I think that the results in the Dutch study are really very, you know, enticing where you see this very high pathological response rate of 60%. That you know, we don't see that in other studies to that extent. And that that it does suggest there might be a signal towards this. Um I think also the other thing about these studies is that the surgery was feasible in roughly the same proportion of patients that we've seen after chemo IO studies. And this has been a worry whereby you know, where we you know we deliver radiotherapy to the thorax that it makes you know, it makes surgery very, very difficult, makes the lung very stuck down. I suppose the presumption here is that the surgery is happening in very close time proximity to the actual uh, delivery of radiation. And therefore, you haven't got those later effects that make surgical resection so difficult after radiotherapy to the thorax. I think this is definitely still something that is worth pursuing. I think it needs a really well-designed phase two. I, I, I think, you know, we'll see them at SAC study the next year, the readout, and I think we will see, you know, hopefully a phase, you know, probably want to be a phase two, lead on to phase three type study design after that. And I think it could be a very interesting for certain patients. I think, again, you know, if you had the right biomarker, that would inform your decision better. People that, you know, DNA damage repair deficit, you know, those those patients may respond better. And we, we are really basically shooting in the dark when you think about the biomarker side of this particular, you know, uh, potential treatment pathway. But it's certainly not ready for prime time. So a few comments coming in about being aware about the risks of, of radiation in this setting, right? You know, cardiac toxicity, uh, et cetera. So, you know, we do need some... And longer-term follow-up, yes, absolutely. And certainly, you know, we're understanding a lot more of the heart, where to radiate and not to radiate. Certainly, the base of heart seems a very key structure. You know, some work we've done, you know, we actually know that the, the pulmonary veins, a structure we never even, you know, considered or thought about, is actually very arrhythmogenic. And if you radiate that, certainly you increase the risk of, you know, post-treatment uh, arrhythmias, which, of course, have their own consequences too as well. And uh, just following on from that, we had the uh, CLGB study, which beautifully demonstrated an increased, you know, it documented what, you know, many of us have seen in other studies, right, Absolutely. which is an increased rate of second primaries, right? So is it 
it's finally time now to start properly following up our resected patients so that we can either resect or savor these new primaries, right? I mean, we've gone from an era where we've just been saying goodbye, contact me if you've got a problem through the occasional chest x-ray. Now, is it really time to, to, to do proper CT-guided follow-up, Jerry? I think so. It's very interesting. The history is very curious because, of course, we had that French study which showed that you know in randomising patients to CT follow-up versus done, there was no survival difference in either arm. And of course, that was a you know a, a very curious result for many. I many to say that's okay to leave these people be, but it probably isn't. Probably what we're doing is lung cancer screening by a, a different method in a, a much more at risk. And what more at risk can you get than a patient who's had lung cancer? So I think you're really doing you know the, the very intense end of lung cancer screening. I, I do think it's time to have a very clear national protocol for that follow-up developed. And with the iSABER protocol, you know, we have commercial studies looking at this uh, group as well, right? Looking for a label for checkpoint inhibitors, combining them with uh, immunotherapy and clearly the iSABER data showing a big difference, right? You commented on the perhaps, you know, lower than anticipated, um, you know, control arm. Um, do you want to comment on really whether whether the forthcoming commercial study, you know, the, the impact of these on the commercial studies? Are we going to see a positive study? Should we really be gearing up all our clinics now to be starting to crank up to be delivering checkpoint inhibitors in the near future, given given yeah. ISO? So I think the first thing to say is, you know, we do we do need a, a later phase study to give us a definitive result. But don't forget, that, you know, in this, so these are very highly selected patient population. Their performance status zero or one. Most patients getting saber in the UK are using performance status two or three at best. So you know, this isn't our generalist. You know, it's quite a niche group of saber patients to begin with. Let alone all the you know the limitations of the analysis study and so on. So I I think that this you would make it would make a big impact for selected patients. It would be really interesting the design of any subsequent studies that we would include poor performance patients in our patients of the poor performance status in those studies to make sure they're more representative of the actual patient population we treat with SABRE for stage one. Fantastic. And Jerry, thank you for your overview and your photographs. And I'm sure you've made everybody extremely jealous uh, of, um, of the meeting. And thank you for actually taking the time out to give My us pleasure, some highlights. Sanjay. Great. Thank you. We're going to move on to our third speaker for this evening. Our third speaker is Professor Fiona Blackhall, who uh, was also faculty as well at the meeting and uh, contributed greatly to the, to, to the uh, meeting. And Fiona, thank you for taking on the task of combining everything of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer into the next few minutes. Off you go. And folk that are there online, please dial in your questions so we can pose them to Fiona when uh, you're over. So Fiona, over to you. A pleasure to be here, Sanjay. Thank you very much for the invitation. Good evening, everyone. So fasten your seatbelts, especially if you're listening to this while uh, driving home from your, your Monday at work. These are my disclosures. And for discussion, I've selected and regrouped these uh, papers from World Lung according to how we now practice in our everyday clinics. So we have our staging, of course, and then pathology, and then our molecular diagnostic subtype, non-small cell lung cancer. So we're, we're going to start with the EGFR uh, positive non-small cell. And this was one of the top abstracts of World Lung. It made the presidential symposium presented by Dr. Pazi Jane. And it is the FLORA 2 trial, of course, osimertinib, 
with or without platinum-based chemotherapy as first-line treatment in patients with uh, EGFR mutated advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Importantly, patients were eligible if they had a, a common mutation, exon 19 deletion or L858R, no prior systemic therapy for advanced disease, stable CNS metastases were permitted, performance data zero or one. Over 500 patients randomized and the top line results here, you can see for the primary endpoint progression-free survival, a positive result with a median PFS 25.5 months for Aussie martinib and chemo compared to 16.7 months for Aussie martinib alone. And I will draw your attention to the other data here that is immature. So the maturity of the PFS endpoint is at 51%, um, um, arguably still uh, immature, but the PFS2 data here in overall survival, less maturity, PFS2 uh, the essentially uh, providing the data on patients who have crossed over to another treatment or, or not been treated following progression. You can see here that the margin of, of benefit is contracting with a hazard of 0.7. 30 months for osimertinib in combination and 27.8 months for osimertinib alone. And then overall survival at the moment sitting as no meaningful difference. Interestingly, the lower bound of um, the confidence interval, 31.9 months, has been reached for the combination, but not for osimertinib alone. So looking at the subgroup analysis, we have some data for patients with and without CNS metastases, and also the split for the type of mutation. There has been some suggestion that there may be a, a differential greater benefit for those with CNS metastases and those with L858R mutation, uh, but I'm not entirely convinced. We might pick that up in the discussion. What is most compelling is uh, the adverse events here. And this, uh, I would like you to keep in, in, your, in your minds, this snapshot tells us all about the relative toxicity, the impact potentially on patient experience of the combination with chemotherapy compared to monotherapy. So you can envisage in a shared decision-making consultation, weighing up the survival benefit with side effects. We have yet to see quality of life data. Um, we need, in my view, an overall survival data that will inform on, on how we can sequence these treatments um, potentially rather than giving chemo and osimertinib up, up front. Another interesting perspective is on biomarker data as a case in point P53 mutation as a co-mutation might confer a worse outcome and that may um, in time be a, a subgroup where the combination might um, predict for a better outcome. But we need more data in my view to inform change of, of practice. So let's move now to other settings in patients with EGFR mutation. Illuminate in the second line uh, setting in patients who have progressed 
on an EGFR inhibitor. This is evaluating um, immune checkpoint um, inhibition with Derva and Tremolimumab plus chemotherapy, two cohorts, T790 negative and T790 positive. Uh, again, EcoPS01, uh, a highly selected uh, population. Uh, if we switch to the progression-free survival, 6.5 months for T790 uh, negative and 4.9 months T790M positive. So um, clinically, not much in it. Some subgroup analysis there according to PDL1 status, but very difficult to uh, place this in context of uh, what we would achieve with chemotherapy alone and whether T790 uh, negative is prognostic uh, rather than a, a true effect of the combination of the immune checkpoint inhibitors and chemotherapy. Another strategy which is more targeted to understanding the resistant mechanism in patients who progress on uh, osimertinib so with a, a repeat biopsy demonstrating met amplification. What is the efficacy and safety of topotinib uh, plus continuation of osimertinib in these patients? So a study of 128 patients, PFS median 5.6 months here, median overall survival 17.8 months. So I think this is interesting, overall response rate 50% and intracranial response rate 29.2 or 30% here, disease control rate intracranially of 79%. There are expected toxicities for a, a MET inhibitor. And the question, of course, is, is whether there is any benefit to continuing osimertinib rather than simply switching to topotinib. But this, this is interesting for targeting uh, a known mechanism of resistance. And then in the third line setting here, uh, the Herthina Lung 01 study uh, of uh, uh, an antibody drug conjugate, so patritumab, Derex-Tican in uh, EGFR mutated patients following a TKI and platinum-based chemotherapy. So here, these patients were not selected for HER3 expression. Um, the response rate uh, around you know, just nearly 30% uh, for patients who had had any prior TKI uh, and patients who had had a third generation TKI, not much in it there. And then the intracranial response rate also uh, broadly 30% um, and, and in patients who had had no prior radiotherapy. So uh, there was some exploratory analysis around uh, patients with definite HER3 uh, expression, not uh, suggesting any improved efficacy in, in that population. So this is um, encouraging as a potential third line option, think perhaps more to tease out with mechanism and, and biomarkers here, uh, but certainly, um, 
showing promise in that um, already heavily pre-treated group. So let's move to MET exon 14, uh, skipping mutation now, two studies in first line and second line, respectively. The first of savalitinib in patients um, who have not received any prior treatment, uh, around 87 patients, primary endpoint of response rate, uh, median progression-free survival here, impressive 13.8 months, median overall survival, not reached, and the overall response rate of 51%. And that is broadly similar to um, agents that we currently have approved, capmatinib um, and um, tapotinib. So it, uh, looking at the um, uh, AE profile, any potential differences, advantages, or, or disadvantages of sahibalitinib compared to other agents in class, and I can't necessarily tease any out here, uh, so uh, uh, not unexpected result of another agent um, in, in this class from et exon 14. The chrysalis study is um, evaluating amivantinav, a bispecific antibody targeting EGFR and MET in patients who have had previous uh, regional standard of care therapy uh, and known to be positive for the exon 14 skipping mutation, you no know, patients with MET amplification in this study, median PFS 5.4 months, OS 15.8 months. And this is the, the breakdown treatment naive response rate of 50%, no prior MET therapies, 46%, but with a prior MET targeted therapy, the response rate does plummet to 21%. So there is encouraging activity, more encouraging for treatment-naive, MET, therapy-naive than in patients who have had prior MET therapies. Okay, let's move to non-oncogene-driven now. Two studies, both in first line and both exploring an, an antibody drug conjugate to, to TROKE2, which is a tumor-associated antigen. And this, in, in the EVOKE2 study, is evaluating uh, sasituzumab, govotecan, combined with pembrolizumab, with two cohorts, about 30 patients with PDL1 one uh, TPS of greater or equal than 50%, and the other cohort, uh, the converse, less than 50%. So primary endpoint is response rate. And here you can see 69% for those with greater than 50%, PDL1, 44% for those with less than 50%. And you will all be thinking, well, might we have got that result with Pembrolizumab alone? And this is the, the difficulty in the single um, cohort early line studies in the metastatic setting, very difficult to place in context how this might ultimately improve on our existing standards. And, but the, the argument here uh, could be promise in the less than 50% population. Here, looking through the, the side effects, these agents uh, do have some different side effects compared uh, to our 
um, immune checkpoint inhibitors, antibodies, antibody drug conjugates often associated with infusion-related reactions. Um, but again, difficult to, to place in context and tease out what um, the uh, ADC is, is adding beyond uh, the immune checkpoint inhibitor. And similarly, in the tropian lung 4 study, this is with uh, DATO-DXD as the trope 2 targeted antibody drug conjugate, a number of different cohorts here. This study enrolled previously treated or treatment-naive patients, um, but um, in reality, the majority of patients were treatment-naive. Very small number of patients in this study, overall response rate, 50% uh, for the doublet, uh, so the antibody drug conjugate with dervalumab, and then a triplet with carboplatin in addition, but no third generation cytotoxic in this study. So tolerable signs of uh, response, but very difficult to place in context of our existing standards in the absence of, of any randomized comparison. Last but not least then, small cell, two extremely interesting agents in the refractory, heavily pretreated setting. The first is a phase one, two study of ifinatumab, Derex-Tecan. This is a B7H3 directed antibody drug conjugate. Uh, B7H3 is a novel immune checkpoint. And these studies were selected for any B7H3 expression. So now beginning to have biomarker-directed trials and therapies developed for small cell. Good performance status, zero to one, in a heavily pretreated group, highly selected, about 200 patients in this uh, analysis. Progression-free survival of 5.6 months, median OS 12.2 months there, which is pro provocative data and a response rate of 52%. So second line topotecan, we talk about a response rate of, of around 10% um, if chemosensitive, maybe slightly higher, 20% or so. This, this is really quite interesting. And then the other agent, um, this is the Boehringer uh, 764532 agent. This is a bispecific that targets DLL3 on the small cell cancer cells and CD3 on T cells. In this the early phase dose escalation trial, patients had to have DLL3 expression and had again received several. Uh, lines greater than or equal than one line of platinum-based therapy, but the majority had received more than one line of 90 patients in this analysis. And here you can see the um, response rate and stable disease rate with uh, about 30% response achieved. So again, interesting provocative data and LCNEC there, a very small number of patients, but the response rate also observed in those patients. So in, for the bispecifics, uh, cytokine release syndrome is a common side effect of very few with a grade three, four, 
but actually a one a grade one two cytokine release syndrome uh, is not um, without impact for patients, and this is where um, there will be a, a significant learning curve for delivery of this treatment if it continues to progress through various studies to become a, a new standard of care, still very early days. So final slide, we have new classes of drug biospecifics and antibody conjugates that are promising, but not yet prime time. Next line therapy options remain a high unmet need for both non-small cell, all indications, and small cell. The optimal combination, uh, the sequencing of our available therapies, overcoming drug resistance remain major challenges. Flora 2 uh, is pointing to a change in practice, but overall survival and quality of life data are for sure in my book awaited. And I look forward to discussing. Thank you. Yeah, Fiona, thank you very much. Superb overview of there's a lot going on in the metastatic space. I mean, there's a huge amount going on. So let's just dive in straight away. Flora 2, it's the big headline. It's what everybody's been waiting for. I get the impression you're a bit underwhelmed with the data. We've gone from 16 months control arm. Remember Flora 1, we had, what, 18 months? And we've gone to an investigational arm for about 25 months. Hazard ratio 0.62, right? It's not 0.8. 0.62, big difference, right? But you're not satisfied yet. You want to see overall survival. Yeah, I think this is a really tough study when we think about, um, uh, tough data when we, we think about our patient population. We have patients who are now um, uh, maintained on a TKI, potentially having uh, remote telephone appointments. So they're managing to continue life as normally as possible, collecting children from school, working, picking up their, their oral meds. And, you know, the side effect profile is, is most uh, concerning for me and how this will impact our, our patients experience and whether we then do in, in fact lose opportunity for next line treatments at, at the point of progression. The, the other aspect is the continuation of, of the maintenance chemo as well. So it, it isn't four cycles of chemo plus third generation TKI, then stop the chemo and maintain with the, the oral. We, we have the maintenance chemo two in the mix. And so is that overall survival data really good enough? Are we comfortable enough with PFS data? Um, well, I'm going to push back and because I, I, I get what you say and I accept it entirely. But in the brain mets population, the investigation arms kept the PFS at 25 months, yet the control arm has dropped from 16 months to 13 months. Bigger widening of the separation hazard ratio 0.4. So is that the group? that we now change because 0.4 is going to lead to a change in overall survival or should we wait? What's your view? Yeah. So it's really interesting, isn't it? And is that driven by intracranial activity? It's difficult to work out why that is happening scientifically or do patients with brain metastases have a higher overall disease burden? And so the chemotherapy systemically has a greater impact there, you know, I, I, it's generating more questions than answers for me. And for sure, 
at the same time, if we can tease out a patient population where in the clinic where we could sit down and say, look, this is your individual case. This is the data and the evidence base we have on balance, the, you know, the benefit risk ratio, the, the side effects v the benefits favor going with the combination or favor going for the monotherapy. That's, that's where we need to get to. So the, the brain metastases data is, is fascinating, isn't it? I think it's a surprise. We might have predicted they would have done worse because. Yeah, totally. And maybe it's because they're actually getting their chemo and those with brain mets, uh, you know, may may not be well enough when they PD to get the chemo. Um, look, we've had so much to talk about. We could go on for another five minutes. There's so much going on in the ADC space. Uh, oh, my gosh. You know, we've really got to brace ourselves for the next wave of ADC studies. Delighted to see IDXD now with the overall response rate of 52% in relapse small cell lung cancer. I mean, that's fantastic on the basis of um, uh, selection. And with the BI drug, the bispecific, 26% response rate, you know, that's sort of coming in what we've seen with Tarlatamab. But what I was really impressed to see is the CRS rate of 1 in 66, N equals 66 much lower than we've seen before. Do you want to just comment on CRS? I know that you've got some experience there. Yes, that's right. Possibly lower. So it's a dose escalation. And so the CRS rate may then be higher at, at the selected uh, dose for subsequent, higher dose for subsequent evaluation. Um, so again, it'll be interesting to see whether two, two agents in the space at the moment that look very similar and their mechanism, chemical structure, whether one, if one has a, a lower CRS rate, then that, that will be interesting to see and will potentially be an advantage for delivery. Very exciting to have these agents coming through in small cell for sure. It's fantastic. And uh, Fiona, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much uh, for your attention. And we're going to close with Dr. Fiona McDonald, clinical oncologist at the Marsden, who's going to final finally sum up all the excellent radiation data that we've had at World Lung. So over to you, Fiona. Thank you very much, Sanjay. And um, I know my brief, which is be brief. Um, so BTOG webinar, just some updates uh, on two studies I'm going to highlight. Okay, so the first relates to the Pacific R real-world data study. Um, and just as a reminder, it was a follow-on study from the landmark Pacific trial. Um, and for those of you who haven't seen the latest update, the standard of care now has five-year overall survival in the adjuvant Mab arm sitting at 43%. And we also had um, a publication earlier this year uh, that just highlighted in the Pacific trial, the small number of patients, 35, that had EGFR status um, EGFR um, mutation status that highlighted that we might not be seeing the benefit um, in this subgroup uh, population, albeit small numbers. So moving on to the data that was presented at World Lung, this was the Pacific R Real World Data Update um, presented by Solange Peters. Um, and for those of you who don't know this study, it was a retrospective review of the patients enrolled in the Pacific Early Access Programme after the initial data from Pacific was, um, uh, was presented. So these were patients that were enrolled between September 2017 and December 2018. And the data we're looking at today is the three-year overall survival data uh, with um, closure of the database at uh, in November 2021. Um, and the full analysis set is of over 1,100 patients across 10 countries. 
So this is the overall survivor um, data and the investigator assessed PFS at three years. So the overall survival data is looking promising across the board. Uh, this compares to uh, three years at 56.7% um, in Pacific uh, the main study, um, the PFS uh, compares favorably. So Pacific was 39.7%. So bearing in mind, you know, there's a difference between the two studies. One is rep rep uh, retrospective in real life. You can't compare them directly, but still promising that in the real world, we're kind of replicating the good overall results. So they also looked at the EGFR mutated population. So of the uh, 466 patients in Pacific R that had known status, 9.4%, so 44 patients were known to be EGFR uh, mutated. Um, and similar to the main Pacific study, we see no difference in overall survival, but there's a hint here that uh, the mutation positive ones in orange here uh, do worse with uh, progression free survival. Um, so and here they've got the data from the two studies side by side, but the caveat being we can't compare them too closely because of the difference in study design, but broadly comparable, um, suggesting that the EGFR mutated uh, patient group don't um, benefit from the adjuvant devalumab, which I guess isn't to be too unexpected, bearing in mind the uh, data in uh, metastatic disease. So their conclusions are that the real-world PFS was lower in the EGFR mutated um, group, um, while the OS was similar, but obviously this is a small study, small subpopulation, um, and needs to be interpreted carefully given PACAR's retrospective nature. And clearly they highlight that we're all waiting for the phase three trial, LORA, to report out on the potential role of adjuvant ozimertinib in the EGFR mutated um, population. So just as a reminder, we're all looking out um, for these results, which will hopefully be out sometime uh, next year. Um, so patients, interestingly, they're including those with um, who have sequential chemoradiotherapy as well as those with concurrent chemoradiotherapy, um, like PACAR, but not like the original Pacific. Um, and then the stratified, um, well, they're randomized two to one to either the addition of ozimertinib or placebo. And this is going to be carried on until objective uh, radiological disease progression. Um, and then the option of post-progression post ozimertinib in both arms. So we need to await this to see what we do with these EGFR mutation positive patients. Um, and then the second study I just want to um, highlight, which is more of a radiotherapy flavor, is an update of a secondary analysis from the RTOG 0617. So just as a reminder, this was a two by two um, randomization, either between 60 gray and 74 gray um, in, in, the, in the locally advanced disease setting, plus or minus cetuximab. And we know that the higher dose was associated with worse overall survival in the original publication a number of years ago now, and that the heart doses um, correlated with survival with a higher heart dose uh, looking detrimental. So they had a planned secondary analysis within this study looking at the influence of radiation um, technique that was presented in World Lung last week. So at the time 0617 opened, not every centre had IMRT compared to 3D conformal radiotherapy. It was a lot more costly and labour intensive. And there was also this concern that because IMRT gives a kind of like low dose bath um, that we 
may need to be more concerned about the lower radiation doses to the lungs and uh, late secondary effects like secondary cancers. So this was um, a pre-planned uh, secondary analysis looking at a comparator between the 3D conformal radiotherapy and the IMRT populations um, with good stratification. And we now have a medium follow-up of 5.2 years. Um, and what they were looking at is the um, potential effect on overall survival, progression-free survival, local failure, and distant metastasis-free survival. Also looking at the late severe greater than grade three or equal to grade three toxicities and development of secondary malignancies, particularly because of this concern about low-dose um, BARF. So um, the baseline characteristics between these um, two groups of IMRT versus 3D conformal radiotherapy were kind of stacked against uh, the IMRT. So we've got a um, slightly higher proportion of the uh, higher stage, the three Bs versus three As. Um, and importantly, uh, is this unfavorable cardiac location because there was concern that maybe the IMRT volumes were further away from the heart and heart doses were already correlated with poor survival. But you can see here there was, you know, a, a, a greater proportion of those that had IMRT that had unfavorable um, cardiac location of their target volume. Um, and also a, a highly significant um, in, uh, increase in median PTV volume um, in those treated in the IMRT arm. And we know that, you know, we can treat larger volumes with IMRT. Um, and they highlight um, that the average was uh, 59 mils, which is equivalent of a double shot glass for those that think in double shot measures when they're doing their PTVs. Um, and, and also they looked at the uh, heart V40 median. Um, and despite the larger PTV volume and the unfavorable location of any of the PTVs, they had a lower median um, V40 uh, dose. But despite all of that, uh, despite the unfavorable group within the IMRT population, the overall survival was similar, the progression-free survival was similar, the distant metastasis-free survival was similar, um, and there didn't seem to be much of an increase in this secondary malignancy uh, with the potential for the low dose bath that um, some had feared we may see. And that's obviously with good uh, long term follow up. And when we look at the severe toxicity, so grade three or above, there was a, a much lower rate of a pneumonitis um, in the IMRT group with similar sort of levels of toxicity. Um, it, it, for the for the other toxicities. And this, we've got to remember, this is it before uh, Pacific, so before patients were receiving Devalumab. Um, and importantly, we're seeing lower pneumonitis potentially going into the kind of LORA world if, if LORA is positive when we're going to be using adjuvant osimertib, um, when we really do want to keep those pneumonitis risks down uh, with the combination with that. So highly significant reduction in pneumonitis with IMRT. Um, I've already mentioned the heart dose. They then looked at the uh, overall survival, um, specifically looking at the split between the uh, V40 less than 20% and greater than or equal to 40%. That's significantly um, different di difference here um, in, in survival using that as a, as a cutoff. And then in the multivariate analysis, I've already highlighted um, this one, and we know that patients did worse overall with the, the higher radiation dose. But this is the one I want to just bring your attention to here. So the lung V5 is a constraint many centers um, used to um, in their plans to help optimize um, the plan, but this did not show any um, significant uh, 
correlate with um, overall survival or multivariate analysis. So the conclusions from this study are that this is probably the strongest evidence we've got to, to date supporting IMRT in locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer. We're unlikely to have ever have a randomised trial of that alone, um, but we do see within this second planned secondary analysis, uh, a significant greater than twofold reduction in severe pneumonitis. Um, and it shows the importance of conformality in treating these large volumes, minimizing the lung V20 and keeping those heart doses um, down to help with survival. And they suggest the heart new heart constraint should be the V40 gray of less than 20%. They then go on to comment on the low dose path, the lung V5 gray, no association with severe long-term toxicity um, or secondary malignancies. And as that ends up being a constraint that degrades your conformality, we should not be using a V5 um, constraint in our planning that should no longer be taken forward. They say age is not a contraindication as shown in the data and IMRT should now be absolutely standard for uh, locally advanced disease. Thank you very much. Fiona, thank you for that excellent overview of those two important studies. I'm just going to focus in on 0617, really. I think what you've said to me just highlights the importance of quality assurance in planning, right, and in terms of um, minimising the cardiac toxicity uh, and obviously implementing IMRT, which I think we're not too bad at doing in the UK, at least as a medical oncologist. Uh, so tell me, um, you know, what what can we do to maximise our quality assurance that, you know, the plans that you are doing, which will minimise the heart and keep to the constraints as being identified here, are, uh, you know, occurring in a similar manner as, as elsewhere, right? So that we make sure that we are reducing our pneumonitis, maximising our safety, particularly when, you know, we're getting more and more toxic drugs being combined with our chemo radiation. Uh, we may well be getting uh, concurrent chemoradiation with Devalimab coming soon. Uh, and then there are other drugs being added on top of that. So, I mean, I think I think the world has changed since RTOG 0617. You know, back then we had limited centres with IMRT, but the, you know, the world has changed. And we pretty much every centre um, has IMRT because we, we know they'll all be commissioned for SBRT and IMRT is a component of that. So it should be readily available. And clinicians, if they are struggling to get it should be pushing to use it for this distinct group of patients because we know it's going to help outcome. Um, we do have peer review locally to ensure that within um, teams in any one centre that you know peer review has been shown also to um, Im improve survival and we have new initiatives like the um, NHS England sort of national database collecting all of these um, dose cubes and things and looking at national lung metrics um, to try and ensure uh, quality plans going forwards. I think the biggest take home here is to drop that V5 as a constraint, because if it's reducing your conformality around other um, aspects, you know, there's no evidence behind still continuing to have it. Um, I think you can go over a, um, a V40 of 20%, but you have to do it with good reason. So it should be in your optimizer to optimize your plan around it. But if it's a difference between curative treatment or going a few percent over, you know, that's a, that's a, a you know, a consent process risk benefit um, ratio with the patients. Um, but the other take home is, um, is that we can treat large volumes, you know, so we shouldn't be shying away from large volumes until we prove we can't meet these constraints. Um, because these patients with large volumes are doing well and, and, and living, living, living long time. Brilliant, that's fantastic. And I will be picking up with you and your other colleagues, the V5 dose on the next few plans I see in clinic. Thank you for that great tip. I always continue to learn from you.
fantastic. So thank you very much, uh, colleagues, for uh, joining us. If I can have the closing slides, please, shared. Um, I'd just like to thank everybody for um, uh, spending their time. And I hope those of you that have dialed in have found this as useful uh, as I have. It's an exciting time in thoracic oncology. It continues to be an exciting time in thoracic oncology. Now, as uh, an organization, we have a number of other events coming on. Of course, we will be having our ESMO update. ESMO is happening in a few weeks' time, and uh, there's a lot that's going to be discussed in that meeting. But in the interim, make sure you have in your diary our next in-person event on the left-hand side of the screen. You can see it's our BTOG Lung Cancer Screening Essential Update occurring on the 6th of October. It's going to be a superb meeting for those of you that are involved in the screening and arena and a new event that BTOG hosting on Wednesday, the 13th of December. Are you an oncologist, mainly an oncologist, who is relatively new in post that are managing patients with lung cancer? So we're going to be doing a one-day workshop highlights meeting to discuss topical controversies in managing lung cancer aimed at those of us that are consultants within perhaps five years or so of CCT. This day is going to be for you. Please make sure you look out for that and register in due course. Of course, please get out your diaries. We have the 22nd BTOG annual conference occurring again in Belfast. It was a fantastic meeting in 2023. And we're back again in 2024 between the 17th and 19th of April. Please put it in your diary, 17th to 19th of April, 2024, BTOG annual conference um, uh, in Belfast. And we have put out in our e-news our dates for abstract submissions. So please make sure you get your data sets starting to be worked up for abstract submission, which will be, I think, in, Jan in January. So with that, I'd like to thank you very much for your attention. I'd like, again, to thank all of our speakers for the time that they put in. And I do hope that all of you out there found this of some benefit. Thanks for your attention and all the best and see you next time.